Hello, and welcome to the Planetary Regeneration Podcast. I'm your host, Gregory Landaway. Welcome, Regenerates. Uh, today, I have the pleasure of hosting Frank von Gonsbecke, who has been on the podcast in the past. He's a professor of the practice at Middlebury, Middlebury College. And um, yeah, we get an opportunity to do a pretty deep dive into his proposal to have an IMF-backed stablecoin that is issued as a climate action reward, which is sort of an evolution of some of the concepts that we've discussed with Dr. Chen, Dr. Delton Chen, and uh, resonant and similar to some of the strategy and approach here at Regen Network. And so it's really exciting. He has a very grounded understanding of international monetary uh, theory and practice and the institutional side of of, um, monetary policy and um, background in finance. And so the granularity and, and Frank's ability to sort of reason and, and make a proposal that is pretty grounded in just the, the pragmatics and practical uh, nature of what it would take to implement uh, something like this in order to realign our global economy with ecological health, biosphere health, climate action is really exciting. And so he and I kind of do a deep deep dive. I play devil's advocate and, and try to draw out some of the nuance of this proposal, uh, which sort of imagines rebooting the IMF and rechartering it so that it some of its uh, institutional challenges of the past are um, maybe beho- can be put behind it. And anyway, I think those of you who are into regenerative economics, uh, macroeconomics, uh, regenerative enterprise and business, we're going to find this a really fascinating conversation. So uh, without further ado, I, I present to you Frank von Gonsbecke, at, uh, professor of the practice at Middlebury College. Welcome, Frank von Gonsbecke. I pronounced that right, correct? <laughs> More or less? <laughs> correct. <You're doing> <laughs> okay, great. I'm really excited to have Very you. Very good job. Sorry, we had a little uh, internet hiccup. I'm really excited. Well, welcome. To have you uh, on. Pleasure to uh, have you here. Yeah, and um, yeah, there's so much to talk about. Um, you just yesterday published a, a three-part um, article on uh, a proposal for a an IMF-backed climate coin. And uh, it's very exciting. It's sort of uh, tracking with some of the ideas that we've explored here on the podcast from Dr. Delton Chen and obviously ideas uh, that you were speaking about in your uh, podcast with me last year. So, yeah, I'm excited to just go a couple layers deeper into the potential of a of a climate coin as part of implementing the Paris Agreement and um just kind of get your perspective. And maybe as we're talking about your perspective, taking some time to try to discern and disambiguate between how you're thinking about this and how Dr. Chin is thinking and maybe how other people in the space just sort of try to kind of like uh, create a little bit of a uh, geography where we can kind of think about different relationships between approaches um, would be really helpful. Um, so yeah, I'm excited to have you on and um, let's let's dig in. Okay, well, um, 
as I said, I think you know, prior to the uh, internet interruption, uh, thank you for having me. And it's a true pleasure to, to share some of the thoughts here uh, today. Fantastic. Um, do you want to start with just a high level? Um, I mean, I'll share a link, of course, with the the podcast. Um, so people, I would highly encourage people to to read Frank's three part article. Um, but do you want to just start with a quick overview of your idea about sort of an IMF backed uh, stable coin? that is being used to reward climate action just kind of you know give us give us the idea in a nutshell and where the inspiration's coming from and um why you think i'd also love to hear a little bit about why you think this sort of institutional approach uh you know is maybe makes the most sense from your perspective mm -hmm. yeah so first of all the genesis of the idea is what i deem to be our five-headed crisis of the moment. So I think, you know, the five-headed crisis being, uh, of course, climate, but also the um, public health pandemic and the, um, the distrust in our democratic institutions and international trade. There is also uh, the um, uh, social injustice and equality question, uh, question. And last but not least, of course, you know, the condition of financial markets and, you know, the over uh, leverage kind of situation of corporates, uh, individuals, and central bank balance sheets. So that's the overall setting. Next to that, you do have the um, Paris Agreement, 2015 Paris Agreement, which is going to be reviewed in the upcoming uh, COP26 Glasgow in, in November. And so you see, on the one hand, all these challenges, and on the other hand, you know, there is an element like a voluntary-based kind of Paris Agreement or the execution thereof, and where there is some uh, want on the back of the participation on this uh, voluntary agreement. So what could be a solution that could incentivize, you know, um, the participating uh, signatories to the agreement and at the same time tackle or at least have some kind of tool that could tackle jointly or concurrently the five challenges that we're uh, being faced with. And so the notion comes, first of all, to uh, come up with this um, climate coin. So why institution back? Because that's, I think, in terms of uh, an element, and that's an approach which could be debated or discussed, but it's, you know, to have, uh, we don't have that much time. So I think you would like to use or fall back on an institution that's actually have uh, some kind of footprint in the space. Uh, so the IMF, I think, you know, uh, created in, in 1944, um, you know, during the Bretton Woods Agreement, you know, has this current role to actually to be, the um, um, supervisor of, you know, uh, exchange rates in the overall uh, foreign exchange market, but also making sure that there is a global um, uh, growth, uh, or at least, you know, sustainable growth into the, uh, um, into the space. I think, you know, there's a lot of criticism that has been exerted uh, in the case of Greece and, and some other countries have suffered, you know, dearly because uh, one of the issues has been that um, there's only going to come an IMF package if and when there is going to be structural reform offered by the country that's actually uh, facing a default or ha uh, facing a crisis. So coming back to that, notwithstanding that, you know, uh, maybe debatable footprint in the space, but I think it's still, you know, the IMF, you would use some of the existing kind of um, uh, components of a toolkit. So you have at the moment, if you look at the balance sheet of the IMF, you have this SDR 
you know, special drawing rights, which were created in 1969 to mimic somewhat the gold standard. So that would be a uh, component, a uh, essential component uh, into the um, uh, composition of your climate coin. The climate coin is a, um, in this instance, would also be constructed as a, um, a stable coin. So uh, when we use the word stable coin, I think it involves um, being positioned on a blockchain and stable coin, it's also meaning uh, that there is collateral available in order to mimic uh, the price volatility. And um, so the coin would be used in order to reward um, incent or sorry, in, uh, in initiatives and efforts on uh, the back of the, uh, 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 of the Paris Accord signatories to foster and to uh, harness uh, efforts in the space of abating the climate uh, challenge. So that's in a nutshell, I think, you know, to start off with, you know, the, uh, uh, the overall structure and uh, design, you know, for this climate coin. Yeah, fantastic. Um, uh, yeah, that's fantastic, Frank. Thank you for that overview. So, uh, I mean, there's a whole sort of set of questions. I mean, one, I would certainly count myself in among the skeptics of the, the choice of the IMF as a sort of trusted institution um, based on their somewhat... Um, uh, yeah, potentially problematic track record in the ways in which they've forced economic restructuring on in, in almost kind of like, I, I mean, I think the critique here is around the, the IMF's role oftentimes in sort of perpetuating neocolonialism through their economic policy. And I, I think, you know, I, I don't want to go too deeply down this. I, I mostly want to focus on sort of the you know, understanding the, the positives and the, this exciting idea. But I do want to just um, voice that there may be some challenges around the choice of the IMF as an institution based on, as I said, their sort of track record as sort of a neo-colonial institution. At least that's how they're perceived by much of the global South. And I think much of the global South is exactly the part of the, the world that really needs the incentive structure to be, to be created in an equitable way. As you said, one of the sort of the heads of this mini headed Hydra <laughs> of the current crisis that we're facing is actually equity at a global scale. And so, you know, that's just, that, that is a concern I, I had when I was reading through the article. And um, I'd love to hear, you know, again, I don't want to go too much on a tangent here because um, it, may, it may or may not be really um, important, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Just sort of like what, what, um, what are your thoughts about sort of a, a defense of the IMF as an institution that can be salvaged or regenerated and and really truly serve as the foundation for a global sort of climate coin um, and sort of coalescing of the Paris Agreement around uh, financial policy? Well, first of all, let me tell you that I concur with a lot of, you know, the concerns that you just, you know, voiced, I think, uh, regarding the IMF. 
And so what the article or, you know, what the proposition currently has done is that, you know, assuming that there is some kind of with the IMF, a uh, revamping of their remit, uh, and also at the same time, some uh, a re-articulation of the values that we would should, uh, or that we could actually uh, impart and that, you know, should be part of the, uh, a, the, the value set that should be embraced by the IMF. So that's part of what I deem to be um, executed at a, to be convened like um, Green Bretton Woods. So I think, you know, you would have a new conference that would actually be part of revisiting the existing agreement of the IMF, because I, I would say in its current kind of design or its current structure, I think it's not in a position, it's hampered to actually fulfill that role, not in the least also because of its um, uh, historical record. Right. Now, but so, I come back so on, you know, deep, I was just going to say part and parcel. So what you're saying is part and parcel for this proposal is a, a sort of rechartering of the IMF um, through a new project um, in order to align it with this sort of planetary scale biosphere, biospheric health um, imperative, you know, sort of planetary boundaries imperative, um, as well as sort of rechartering it with a firmer foundation in a sort of more equitable approach to um, managing the global finance sphere. So those two things would be part and parcel with this sort of new green Bretton Woods rechartering of the IMF. And then, yeah, okay, th that's, uh, that's really interesting. I mean, um, great. So, so then, then proceeding from there, you were going to sort of keep, keep going with, um, from, from that. Well, I would keep on the analogy in the sense that you would actually still, as you mentioned, the South would be the recipient of a certain um, financial package or uh, pecuniary, uh, sorry, pecuniary incentive. And that would be in exchange for, instead of what, you know, was deemed to be uh, structural reform in accordance with orthodox uh, economic theory, that would now be converted or altered into efforts in order to abate, you know, the challenges of the climate change. So that would be um, anything that uh, could help, you know, to decarbonize their social uh, societal footprint, you know, to accelerate, you know, the, the uh, electrif uh, electrification of, you know, their uh, network. Um, so maybe also revisiting some of the existing agricultural practice, you know, moving more to regenerative kind of practices. So that would be becoming part and parcel of this kind of agreement between the newly uh, or the revamped kind of remit uh, of the IMF and, you know, the beneficiary countries, you know, uh, and their underlying request for uh, restructuring their practicing to uh, the current economic practices in order to meet, you know, the climate goals uh, of, by 2050. Yeah, fantastic. So um, just, I, I would love, you know, I, I think I'm going to, um, with your kind permission, sort of uh, play devil's advocate a little bit just to kind of help uh, bring out some of the nuance that I think is embedded in, in your thoughts. Is that, uh, does that sound like a, an okay way for, for the conversation to go for the next sure. sort of few cycles? So one other kind of restraint playing devil's advocate would be that it, it really feels as though we're at a moment right now when the appetite for global institutions is, it, is, is at, I wouldn't say an all-time low, but is ebbing. And it's ebbing very quickly. Um, and so this, the, the sort of 
you know, capital L liberal institution and the sort of convening of, um, you know, the IMF and the Bre Bretton Woods and, you know, how what that reflected on sort of the world order post World War Two, it, it sort of feels like there's a retrenchment and a reaction to the sort of like global institutions happening right now. And I'd love for you to kind of contextualize um, again, contextualize your thinking within that as a trend. Is that something that you're thinking doesn't really, like maybe isn't a durable trend? And, and so, you know, we can sort of get on with the business of creating, you know, uh, the, the right global institutions, or is that in fact driving, you know, your, your thinking about sort of the rebooting of this institution? Um, yeah, I'd just love for you to comment on that sort of retreat retreating of global institutions and how that plays in with the thinking around this this space and time and you, you know your proposal as it were mm -hmm. yeah yeah so what you actually you know argue is actually part of the five-headed crisis so when i mentioned you know the distrust in um some of the institutions but also by extension international trade is part of this and the reason why we have this distrust is because of, um, you know, some of the, the, the fallacies that, you know, existed within uh, or by applying these neoliberal kind of economic approaches and that led to major kind of suffering on the part of these um, recipient um, countries. So what is actually part of, and this is essential, is, um, and I strongly believe that if there is both a, uh, remandating re of the IMF and at the same time, you know, a new value charter or a set of kind of objectives in the field of um, the, uh, the new economic order. And I think which would be far more, you know, healing, regenerative in nature, I think should actually abate some of those concerns with respect to uh, the existence of a institution like the IMF and also cooperation. Because I think, you know, what we have to start realizing is that, um, you know, with the climate change awaiting or ahead of us, I think we will, we, we will uh, be uh, compelled to fall back on international cooperation. There's no other way where we can actually, um, I think it's another major fallacy if we can think that, you know, we can actually do this on a nation by nation kind of effort. Yeah, no, I, I mean, clearly we're dealing with a global problem. I completely agree with that. And I think sort of rebalancing this sort of Cosmo local or, or sort of taking a, taking a page out of Michelle Bowen's book at Peer-to-Peer uh, -Peer Foundation with co the Cosmo local understanding or sort of, uh, you know, reinventing and reimagining the commons um, and understanding that there is a role for global coordination, it just looks much different than the neoliberal approach was. Um, and, you know, it's always an interesting line. I mean, I think I'm, I fully resonate with everything you're saying, but I think it's, it's really, um, there's sort of like the preponderance of evidence, uh, current evidence and, and current sort of gestalt or the react, reactivity that people have to global institutions right now it's, it's sort of important to um, make it clear what rebooting these institutions in a way that is really sort of more tethered to sort of a, uh, a regional sovereignty approach looks like. Um, 
and how important that is and how essential that is. And, you know, I'm, I'm curious um, how you would, you know, in the, in the meme sphere and, you know, and just, you know, the, the, ch the churn of the last few, you know, I guess with the, with the, the pandemic and just everything that's been happening socially, one of the ideas that I've been hearing sort of float to the surface, both and, and, and really a lot of reactivity to, to this idea from both the far left and the far right is this, you know, this concept that came out of the, the WEF of the great reset. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I'd love to just hear you comment about, you know, A, if you've been seeing that kind of reactivity, if that kind of stuff came through your filter bubble or, or not. And, um, and then how does your uh, proposal here kind of resonate or not with those sorts of ideas that, that are being um, sort of that are emerging out of the kind of Davos crowd and the WEF that, that uh, at least at face value sort of sound somewhat similar? Yeah, so, you know, one of the reasons, and again, I, I hear and I've tried to uh, understand, you know, the critiques that are being conveyed by both ends, you know, the spectrum. So um, uh, whether it's the neoliberals or the, the extreme left wing or the left wing uh, side of, um, um, you know, the audience, I think, you know, coming back, first of all, it's coming back to an international institution with some footprint um, is because of the limited amount of time we have to actually kickstart this transformation. So, um, and I'm open, again, I'm not espoused to the IMF as an institution, but if there would be another institution that, you know, could fill it, could, could fulfill that role, I think, you know, by all means. The reason why, you know, the IMF has been selected was because it's A, it existed, and B, I think it has a certain footprint, be it, you know, a very questionable footprint, but again, that's where, you know, the, uh, the new remit would, would actually, or the new mandate would actually uh, try to fill in that um, critique yeah. or address that critique. Now, yeah, absolutely. Well, I think just to, just to like color and land this a little bit, I mean, I mean, in both sort of the far left, um, sort of more, you know, sort of like anarchist circles, what I hear, you know, there's just a, a deep distrust of the, you know, ostensibly neoliberal institutions, uh, and and the same is true on the far right, and and both it seems to me have sort of trended towards, and in a weird way, <laughs> in their weird way, are sort of saying similar things around the need for like pretty radical, probably more like a nat more nationalism at the end of the day, or more localism, um, instead of the globalism that, and and what's what's. What strikes me, though, I mean, just this is, you know, me expressing my personal opinion. What strikes me is I'm actually quite, I, um, I'm quite excited by the discourse around, for instance, the Great Reset. Um, I think it's, from my perspective, you know, as an outsider to that community, but having some relationships within people who are part of the WEF and the Davos crowd, I'm certainly not sort of like an insider by any means, but I have, I know people who at least are sort of like, you know, are in that world. Um, I find it to be all pretty genuine, right? And, um, and so I find myself wanting to figure out how 
to sort of like create a big enough tent where everyone seems to be saying the same thing. Hey, we need to reboot. We need to recharter these institutions. We need to refind. We need to refound the economy and our, our political institutions, our economic institutions, knowing what we know now about climate change, about, uh, you know, the new, new, new media, new social media, all of these different things. It feels like there's actually so much more commonality <laughs> between what, what in the echo chambers and like the polarized discourse of the moment seem disparate and at odds and polarized, but actually people seem to be saying something very similar uh, and even seem to be coming to very similar conclusions. And so anyway, I'm just, um, I'm, so, so I'm always wanting to kind of, you know, dig down a little bit for people, you know, there may be listeners who are maybe a little bit more radical on one side or the other. And, and I, I, I guess I'm wanting to encourage everyone who's listening to, um, to, to sort of hold the question as we're going through this discourse with Frank, what, what would a rechartering of these institutions that play an essential role in managing our global commons need to have at this moment in order to to generate the right trust and the right relationship. And just sort of like, we all need to just hold that as the key question. Not necessarily, I mean, I think we can all agree that most, most of these institutions have failed in one way or the other, but you know, that's kind of neither here nor, nor there, I would say. So. Um, yeah, I, and again, I, I just want to uh, chime in. And again, I, I, can, I can feel and I can sense, you know, the concerns that, uh, you know, uh, some of the listeners might have with respect to the IMF, but I don't want to single out the IMF. Again, I'm not a spouse to the, to the IMF. I think the, I'm just thinking about an institution that could be used as a template, you know, for executing what I would call a new kind of climate oriented policy. And uh, maybe it is good at this stage also maybe to focus on some of the objectives of this climate coin. And then we can look at maybe at, at, at some of the, the details of, of, of the structuring. So, in before terms of the that, before sorry. we do that, let's yep. let's actually take a step back and say <laughs> what would and, and I totally hear you. And this is where I, I mean I think in order to actualize what you're talking about, the real challenge is going to be this sort of like softer getting human buy-in to the institution. You know, the, mm -hmm. the, the, the technical and monetary mechanics of the of of a sort of reward currency stable coin that incentivizes ra a rapid trans transformation of our economy, at least for me, that all feels solid. Like we're on really solid ground there. And I am excited to go through the details of that. But what feels more, you know, like I'm still have big question marks is what's the right institutional theory of change? You know, is it best to refound an existing institution? Is it best to bring stakeholders together around a new institution? Is it best to convince many different, you know, polycentric, a polycentric approach with existing institutions? And, you know, so I'd actually, I, and I, I don't think we're going to answer that question, but I'd love to hear from you. I'd love to just draw out from you, Frank, what you think, like the, the first principles of a, a, either 
whether it's the IMF or something totally new, what would the what would the ethical and maybe even monetary principles that this institution would need to you know be born out of in order to fulfill the, the imperative of the present moment and successfully manage a, a climate a, the rollout and execution of a climate coin approach mm -hmm. yeah so in terms of i think there there's two major elements one is governance right so i think is the proper representation of as you mentioned before, you know the South in 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 the overall uh, discourse, uh, or in the overall sorry uh, decision making process. That's you know one element, uh, pretty important. Um, so the overall decision process: how do you actually take decisions? How are uh, decisions being questioned? How is there transparency, accountability, follow up of those rules? So I think that's maybe you know one important kind of channel, the other or pillar. The other. A pillar is, you know, the charter of values. And um, so one of the major elements that I would, you know, like to see in this charter of a uh, newly mandated IMF might be, you know, a, a type of uh, Hippocratic oath, you know, do no harm, right? So I think that's <clears throat> pretty ambitious, but you know, make this part of your charter. Um, secondly, also uh, don't uh, support or finance um, activity faced, uh, you know, based on extraction. Um, thirdly, you know, try and promote regenerative kind of practices, you know, with respect to food production, agriculture. Uh, fourthly, also think about the healing aspect. So if you look at, uh, at the moment, whether it's, you know, the global health uh, pandemic or whether it's the overall, uh, I would call, you know, uh, psychological well-being of the globe. I think there's a lot of tension. There's a lot of um, troubles, you know, emotional troubles, you know, given the, the fact that people have been faced in a lockup. So there is a lot of need for, you know, the kind of support to be uh, healing in nature. So and healing being a very broader, it can be, of course, you know, in public health, but also can also address some of the issues with respect to the more emotional and the psychological well-being of the people affected uh, by, you know, the five-headed crisis. Yeah, no, I think well said. Thank you for taking a moment to, to just unpack that. I think it's it's really great to sort of found this, like try to sort of go a layer deeper and try to um, uncover the foundations of this idea that, that are sort of, mm -hmm. you know, at the end of the day, there's, I think there's a theory of change that you're inviting us to consider around salvaging and rebooting existing institutions repurposed for the present moment. But also I think there's a really, um, there's sort of an astute and important understanding that what's, what's really foundational is, um, yeah, we need something that everybody can trust. And maybe it makes sense to use existing institutions because they already have those relationships, <laughs> but they need to be sort of refounded in the, in, for the present moment. So cool, that, thank you for sort of checking that, uh, <laughs> sort of going through that first phase of, um, of conversation. I'd love to transition to, yeah, kind of a little bit more of the mechanics of how this, how this works. And, um, you know, what, what, uh, so, Maybe I'll, I'll, I'll try to uh, ask a quick question to, to guide the next step. So um, my understanding is essentially there would be sort of like a year-on-year -year, uh, issuance that 
we could say is sort of like strategic or or guided quantitative easing, meaning there's a creation of uh, of currency that is distributed out into society for in order to to incentivize some specific actions. In this case, there's sort of a a um, criteria of um, climate action and some threshold of verification. Um, and there'd be sort of like year on year issuance. And then there'd be this currency would be flowing into the um, society, as it were. Um, mm -hmm. um, can you add a, another layer of color to that just very superficial summary of the proposal? Uh, sure. But I think, you know, you, you've already said, you know, the basic elements. What I would add is, first of all, you know, there would be a link. So there is a notion of limited supply of those uh, climate coins. That's one. And B, it would be tied to the remaining budget, the carbon budget, you know, to stay well below the 2% or the 2 degrees um, uh, Celsius increase in temperature. And so that at the moment has been quantified as being uh, 1,400, sorry, 1,043 gigatons of uh, CO2 equivalent, right? So yeah, yeah, right around a teraton. Correct, exactly. So you, you, you would have a, the supply would be limited um, to 10% of that reserve, like so uh, that uh, uh, 1,000 gigaton. Have, have you so, uh, yeah. have you considered to me when I look at that and, and this is we we thought a lot about this in the early days of region network and thinking about our our token economics and mm -hmm. to me I look at that as a total supply and it kind of sort of resonates with Bitcoin in that there's a fixed supply right and mm -hmm. and Bitcoin um, Bitcoin in in the fixed supply it gets harder and harder to establish yep. those. And I imagine a similar dynamic taking place. And, you know, you need more and more rigor around verification. In fact, just the mechanics of carbon sequestration as, you know, uh, whatever the peak of atmospheric carbon is, that will be the easiest because that's going to be the most parts per million in the atmosphere. <laughs> it will just get harder and harder to draw them down into soils and forests and, you know, direct air capture machines. So it seems like there's a double there's a double increase in challenge. Um, I'm curious how that, you know, to, to, to me, I sort of see that arc and I see that limited supply. And I wonder how that jives as an approach with, with the sort of stable coin strategy. And to, yeah. me, to me that those are, I'm having trouble wrapping my head around the macroeconomics of sort of a stable coin approach versus sort of an, an asset a little bit more like Bitcoin that may actually appreciate in value as it gets harder and harder to, to actually earn these uh, tokens. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that, on that kind of macroeconomic level. Yeah, so the, I think, you know, what, what you know, I've tried to address with a stable coin related in, or being uh, of, uh, or consisting actually of a limited supply tied to the remaining carbon budget if you compare it to Bitcoin, so a lot of the criticism of Bitcoin is the fact that uh, people are saying, okay, it's very energy consuming. You know, we can't see the true purpose of a Bitcoin, or at least I think in, in, if you ask the purpose by extension, uh, extension, what is the societal purpose of a Bitcoin, right? So I think it's what, you know, is it reallocating in capital that it was not, you know, uh, doing or uh, before the introduction of Bitcoin, um, was was uh, uh, actually taking place. So 
the whole notion of this climate coin is to advance the importance of a ton of carbon, right? So I think, you know, what is it, uh, you know, this ton of carbon, which for many reasons at the moment is being ignored, or, you know, at least by the majority of the people and, and, and mostly by what I would call the key decision takers and leaders, it's not, you know, being embraced as being, you know, the key um, decision variable to be taken into account, you know, uh, for, you know, investment or financing uh, decisions. So if you introduce a coin that links the importance of this carbon budget or remaining carbon budget, um, it will actually convey the, the notion or the importance to uh, address and to allocate capital to uh, reduce the amount of consumption of carbon. That's the first thing. The second thing, you know, what the coin is also trying to do is um, linking to, or the coin would be linked to a minimum price of carbon uh, or a ton of carbon equivalent. And so um, that gives the IMF or whomever institution that would replace it, you know, the ability to also give a very, very strong price guidance towards, uh, you know, uh, you know, voluntary or mandatory uh, ETS or cap and trade type of platforms uh, around the globe. And so this is, um, it's actually trying to uh, catch several birds, you know, with this one stone, but compared to Bitcoin, so the, you know, nobody's denying the, the strength of a Bitcoin in the fact that you do have this, um, ability or, you know, uh, trustless kind, uh, kind of consensus mechanism and protocol. And, you know, uh, combined with this public uh, key kind of uh, um, methodology, I think, you know, comes up with something that's very robust and actually can, you know, to some extent offer an alternative to fiat currencies uh, at the moment. But what, you know, uh, Bitcoin is lacking where, you know, is definitely lacking is societal purpose, right? Over and above, you know, um, offering store of, of value. Um, there is not, you know, any, what I would call incentive to reallocate capital and resource to what is called or what is deemed to be, uh, again, uh, our five-headed crisis, or at least, you know, trying to abate our five-headed crisis. You know, at best, I would deem the Bitcoin to be a hedge against a, uh, uh, the outcomes of the crisis, but it's definitely, I don't see it at least, you know, an incentive to reallocate capital to address our five-headed crisis. I'm coming back to the climate coin. So the climate coin as such has a um, several functions. It acts as a unit of account. It acts as a store of value, and it acts as also as a reward kind of coin or incentive. It is not a medium of exchange at this stage. Right, so I think it's not, you know, you could not use it for the retail purpose, you could not use it for interbank uh, transfers. But that's, you know, uh, maybe for later, I think it would, you know, it would be great to have a currency of a global nature, maybe a reserve uh, status that would actually embrace, you know, the, um, the challenges that uh, our climate is currently representing and that you do have a currency that's actually uh, almost like, uh, like an invisible hand uh, reallocating capital to uh, the resources that are most needed uh, within the sphere or within the uh, overall challenge of our uh, climate change. Yeah, well, so this is where, it, to me, this sort of um, the intersection of ethos and praxis, you know, um, gets really interesting because, uh, I mean, at Region Network, we're essentially, we're going the same direction you're outlining, but we're going in a different way. Um, which is sort of a, instead of 
sort of convincing or asking in existing institutions permission or, or sort of like talking them into this, which I totally all for just to be honest. I just never felt like I had the sway. <laughs> so it's like, what, it, what, it, what did I have the ability to do? Well, start trying to build some stuff. So um, instead we've focused more on what does it look like to create a foundation for sort of a grassroots movement of bioregional regeneration agreements, tokens, digital currencies that, that can sort of be built into a global index. So, so you can achieve the same sort of basket or index and, and unify that into a single currency that is especially, that essentially represents sort of a, a regenerative outcome or a, a appropriate relationship between economy and ecology, uh, good carbon cycle, whatever we want to sort of imbue into that. But, but it happens in a different way. It happens in the way of sort of through the transformation of people being able to sort of be their own um, managers of monetary policy, which sort of a, a self-sovereign approach to building blockchains in kind of a grassroots level makes possible. And, and, it, and it meets what you're talking about exactly. It's sort of like, oh, it, 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 it achieves the same thing. <laughs> at the end of the day. So I'm, you know, I'm quite excited. I'm wondering, you know, does, do these two meet and complement each other? You know, I'm thinking of, uh, for instance, I'm thinking of, um, I don't know if you got a chance to, yet to read uh, the Ministry for the Future. Did you yet, Frank? Well, I actually, I'm in, in the midst of it. So, um, uh, of reading the book. So, so hmm, should I, I don't want to do a plot spoiler here. <laughs> uh, well, let's just say, in as is common with Kim Stanley Robinson's theory of change, um, he, in his books, there's sort of this oftentimes is elegant and inadvertent meeting of a grassroots approach with an institutional approach in which the grassroots approach essentially forces the action of institutions because if they don't do it, their power dissolves because people will do it on their own, basically. Mm -hmm. So it's sort of like, you know, and this may be, you know, in, in some way, I think my theory of change at Regen Network, just to be perfectly transparent, um, is we could potentially create a system in which, you know, if institutions like the IMF don't take these actions, it's kind of no big deal because everyone will have the ability to take those actions on their own. And mm -hmm. it, it, it just means that those institutions simply diminish and dissolve and disappear because they're no longer serving the function that they, that they need to. And so there's a, it sort of, it can bring, my hope is that this kind of innovation, disruptive innovation brings the institutional actors to the table in a way that sort of forces everybody's hand to, to cooperate. <laughs> you know, everybody just needs to get down and cooperate because there's sort of a single existential crisis here <laughs> that we're all in together. I couldn't agree more. And again, you know, there is, we have this climate coin or the IMF backed climate coin you know, I'm making the case for uh, complementarity uh, so that, you know, the, you, you can have coexistence of, you know, local currencies, you can have uh, crypto, you can have uh, fiat, uh, you can have uh, central bank uh, issued digital currencies, and you have the IMF 
climate coins. So I think this is also very important to have to create a monetary ecosystem where all these uh, currencies can coexist in a sense that will actually only strengthen the overall resilience of you know, the system. Because what we currently are facing is you know, one of the reasons why you know, I, I tried to come up with this solution is because we have a looming crisis, you know, be it in uh, the effects market, be it in the bond market, because what's happening, you will see a strain as a result of uh, the ongoing uh, consequences of the pandemic on the balance of uh, payments uh, in, in towards exporting countries and, of course, towards uh, countries holding or actually having issued debt in foreign currency. So all these you know, countries will actually be faced uh, with, with a need to uh, address the situation. And so how can this be done? Uh, over and above, you know, the existence of these fiat currencies. So that's, you know, also one of the rationales or, you know, one of the reasons why I, tr I, I try to come up with, uh, with the notion of this IMF uh, stablecoin. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's fantastic. And I know that this has been a labor of love for, for quite some time, because I think when you, you and I first met, we were very excitedly speaking about, sort of speaking around this, this idea um, even back then. So I know you've been thinking, you know, in, in, in serving uh, as one of Bancor's advisors and, you know, sort of the concept of Bancor. So I'd love for you to um, sort of maybe place, because you're, you're a professor of the practice at Middlebury. And mm -hmm. um, so you're sort of bridging, you know, practice with theory in your day-to-day -day life. I'd love it if you could take a crack at sort of, you know, without pigeonholing your thinking here, if you could sort of place that on a sort of uh, geography of economists, you know, is this sort of neo-Kinsian or um, wh where, who would you, what sort of branches of economic thinking are inspiring you and do you think are, are particularly relevant for the people who are listening who might be sort of either professional or, or amateur economists? Um, where are you drawing inspiration from and where do you think, you know, this theory is sort of founded and, and grounded in, in terms of economic thinking? Yes, yeah, so there is actually uh, several um, kind of um, leaders or thought leaders in, in, in the space. I think there's not one specific. I think, you know, you use the word neo-Keynesian. I think that's pretty correct in a sense, I think in... in um, um, but where I actually, you know, um, if I would be purely Keynesian, um, I think I would not, you know, introduce the notion of stable coin. Right? So I think there's still an element where I try to bring in uh, the, um, uh, some stability or some anchor. Because you might remember, I mean, that was a dichotomy that was represented in, in Bretton Woods in the sense that you had, on the one hand, you had, um, you know, somewhat the, uh, the dollar... Uh, tied into a certain amount of gold, so the gold standard. And on the other side, you had Keynes, you know, who came up with the notion of bank core and also with a, um, um, a, a um, embracing of a theory of uh, major government spending. So I think, you know, this is, you know, here I, I tried to come up with an element, you know, try to combine both at the same time. So again, in the interest to create stability or to create or introduce a anchor uh, or a pegged currency to which other the other uh, currencies I referred to in my earlier ecosystem, monetary ecosystem, could actually be benchmarked uh, on towards. Now, 
in terms of other people who inspired me in in uh, this field, you know, when I in, you know talk about carbon uh, price, you know, there is uh, of course this uh, Paul Romer uh, Nordhaus. You know, I talk about the Commons uh, also. I think you know because we have been ignoring in our current practice. You know, we've totally totally ignored you know the the Commons to our own detriment. Um, so there is a um, uh, there's the thinking of uh, uh, Wendell in in here too. So I think it's you know part of that uh, uh, introducing of the importance of uh, the the commons, so the clean water or the access to clean water, clean air, and clean soil. And now also I would you know and, you know add to that also the um, you know the importance of democracy uh, as as a cornerstone of a viable economic system. Yep. Yep. Yep, 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 fantastic. And um, how would you say, how, how do you conceptualize, you know, the, 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 the 500 pound gorilla in the room? I mean, I guess there's sort of two of them <laughs> or maybe three, but you know, the, the one that I, I'm most curious about right now is the People's Republic of China and how you would foresee their adoption or relationship with this kind of strategy you're um, charting. It seems to me that they've, they by and large have adopted this sort of global institution, uh, monetary institution, um, and sort of are, are doing their best to play well in that. But um, anyway, I'd, I'd love to hear you just sort of outline at a macro level how you see this playing well with actions that they're taking or not, or, or sort of requiring, mm -hmm. or requiring some, you know, change with, within China or in relationship to China from other uh, international or national actors. Yeah, I think it's... Um... You know, there I would say short term and medium to long term. So in the short term, I think you know they would very much embrace this notion of the IMF stablecoin because it would actually allow them to be part and to be seen as a global player and to be um, partaking in in um, to be a team player uh, with international institutions. The medium and the long term, the question uh, remains to be to be asked. I think what we see, uh, if if you look through history, once you become the dominant global power, you're going to start using your own currency as the reserve currency. And you're going to be using uh, all your might, economic and military, to uh, preserve, in this case, the renminbi as your uh, reserve currency. So then I think, you know, to the medium and long term, I think the question is, will they fall in line with what we've seen in history, right? So, um, uh, but that has to be combined also with the you know, by that time, so we, we're talking here about a 20 to 30 year time frame. By um, to what extent have we been impacted by uh, the physical, uh, sorry, by the physical risks of our climate change, right? So to what extent does China realize all of a sudden that they do need international cooperation in order to address this kind of, um, um, you know, uh, major challenge? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, now, I know, I don't know, maybe it's too early to comment on this, but do you see, are you hopeful that this kind of 
that there's enough because I know you're not alone, right? In, in proposing something similar to this. Um, there's a, a, a small, but I think active community with convergent thinking. I, I would mm -hmm. say there's definitely some different sort of schools or approaches or whatnot, but there's a lot of, I feel like there's, there's a lot of movement um, in this general direction. I'm, I'm curious if you feel pretty optimistic in the ability to have this conversation with the right people on the right time frame in order to take a, a good crack at uh, sort of an institutional strategy like this, you know, are we going to be seeing a, a green Bretton Woods, you know, in the coming year? Um, is there um, movement and momentum in that direction? Is it too early to say? Um, yeah, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think there's a lot, there's a lot of, um momentum for a green Bretton Woods and um, uh, it actually might might actually reside um, within different kind of spheres right so there might there some th sorry some thinking might be around the Nobel Prize Foundation and the people around the Stockholm Resilience Center that might be one party you know or the other party might be M.R. Carney who might get inspired and say gosh you know that would be great if I could be you know, chairman of a Green Bretton Woods. So that would be the other party. And there's, of course, you know, there's uh, smaller organizations which are very dear to the notion of Bretton Woods and they might actually come up with their own alternatives. So there's, there's different kind of initiatives and, and um, projects that are being talked about, but yet not, not, I'm not still not aware of uh, actually one being uh, actually taking place. But um, as I said, there are three, three of these three constituents. Uh, I know that there are some form or in some form or shape talks about uh, organizing this type of uh, conference. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good. Well, we'll see. I, I think certainly there's a lot of momentum I see in sort of the sort of the more grassroots startup. And I know I know there's a lot of sort of the technological foundation, the monitoring, reporting, and verification foundation that people are very, are very are including region network, are hustling to to implement. Sort of, you know, thinking about the bureaucracy needed to sort of verify and distribute uh, these these tokens, these coins that represent climate action um, in a, in a good way. Um, I believe that that, you know, that bureaucracy is, you know, in quotes, is going to be digitally native and that sort of a, a blockchain based infrastructure, public infrastructure sort of makes the most sense. And I see a lot of movement, you know, everyone uh, from, you know, the Interwork Alliance, which includes Microsoft and other folks, um, mm -hmm. us, us at Region Network, um, most of the major registries, Gold Standard, yep. Vera, yep. you know, um, you know, the, the EU. Uh, there's a bunch of work happening at ESA, Copernicus program. And, you know, I know the EU has taken some really um, exciting leadership on sort of distribution of subsidies based on satellite verification of practices and things. So, so there's, there's sort of a significant uh, set of the building blocks for a lot yes. of what you're talking yep. about that are, mm -hmm. that are out there and, and advancing at a pretty steady pace. Correct. So, yeah, I mean, this is um, where I take personally a lot of heart in the sense that you do have these different kind of initiatives, right? So uh, in terms of, if you look at the blockchain, so most of the major central banks are having major research undergoing. So you have the Fed of Boston, you have uh, Central Bank of Canada, uh, the Dutch Central Bank, Bank of England, the Swedish um, Riksbank, 
all have major efforts undertaking. So uh, you you have in the private blockchain space enough examples of things that you know are could could actually are execute you know are not only uh, uh, executionable but also exist and are performing very well. So there's a lot of things that could be uh, copy pasted you know very soon. The reason also um, you know in my uh, in my proposal is that I exclude the medium of exchange. So I think it you know it's it's an element that could uh, actually be executed, quote unquote, on a book entry kind of format. Um, but the, the settlement in itself could also be undertaken, as I said, against third party certification and on the back of satellite imagery, uh, geopolit uh, sorry, uh, geolocation uh, systems. So in order to uh, avoid the double dipping that could occur. So these are all uh, initiatives and projects that are underway. Now it's the whole challenge is now to make it uh, interlinked and uh, aggregate it in, into the purpose, you know, for uh, supporting a, uh, uh, now I'm not gonna use the word IMF, but just a climate coin that could be used in the execution of the Paris Agreement. Yeah, fantastic. Um, that's, yeah, yeah, good. It's, it's interesting to see all of this moving and how quickly it's moving. And um, mm -hmm. I'm also, you know, maybe it'd be interesting to maybe shift gears a little bit. And, you know, in, in we're sort of talking macroeconomics and monetary policy um, in institutions, rebooting of institutions in order to support monetary policy that reflects sort of, you know, a, the climate reality and incentivizes ecological regeneration. I, I'd love to shift it a little bit more to sort of um, investment maybe out of monetary policy and in, into finance, you know, and, and what from your perspective are the most promising um, and, and interrelated with what you're talking about? Cause I think we're sort of, that's what we're bridging here is like what's happening on the ground with all of these initiatives, you know, what are the most promising um, trends in, you know, ESG, SDG, um, carbon markets, um, sort of more at the, yeah, uh, from the from the finance and investing lens that you feel like are evidence, you know, really firmly evidence of the, the mar markets shifting in the way that now we also need to invite institutions to support. Yeah, there are many initiatives underway, as you're aware. Uh, unfortunately, until I think, you know, the one element that's missing is your a carbon price, right? So I think, you know, un, un, until we actually set a price for carbon and that's on a global level, um, we will be actually, um, um, you know, beating about the bush in a sense. And um, so I have a lot of respect for these uh, initiatives, whether it's, you know, uh, PRI-led, um, so principles for responsible investment, you know, where they're putting pressure on, you know, um, uh, through the, um, institutional investors on the investees on, on several in terms of their footprint. But it's not in my, in, in our, you know, my humble view, it's not the reporting disclosures or that these TCFDs that will actually change, you know, um, a, a, an element of corporate behavior that we need in order to um, reach or yield the uh, 2050 uh, zero uh, carbon uh, objective. So that's, Again, I don't want to take this away or I don't want to minimize and denigrate the efforts that are being led. 
but it will never, never, you know, equate to, um, you know, having the ability to uh, fall back on this carbon price. And I'll give an example, you know, uh, into the bank lending, uh, you know, uh, sorry, the bank lending landscape. Um, so you have banks, you know, still uh, as of this day, uh, lending money and completely agnostic of the impact of externalities or the impact of carbon in that uh, price setting framework of a bank. Um, so uh, there is an element where, you know, you can actually uh, ask for a lot of disclosures. You can maybe ask, you know, okay, to no longer lend or to no longer invest, but then somebody else will pick it up, right? So I think, you know, then you will be shifting that activity from the regulatory to the shadow banking. And so this is something that you need to avoid. I think it's something that uh, until we will have this um, it's, as, it's as simple as that, you know, a unique global uh, applicable price for carbon, you know, uh, we will be uh, still uh, beating around the bush. So who's going to, how, how does that, how does that price come about? Again, I know different people have different theories um, mm -hmm. and, and are trying in different ways. I mean, I think there's a whole community of people that are doing their best to, um, make a global carbon price come about, you know, and, and I think there's institutional work on this insurance companies, reinsurance companies probably have a lot of um, incentive to get, get a good carbon price. Mm -hmm. um, it seems like banks, you know, I saw, I saw a very interesting article that the bank of England was, I believe had published their estimate of a, of carbon pricing. Um, mm -hmm. I have to go back and look, it looked like it was upwards of a hundred dollars a ton. Yeah. Yep. Uh, which well, I Swiss Re Swiss Re is using internally a hundred dollars for carbon. Yeah. So and and that's 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 fantastic. That's I would put it. I mean, I think probably you know I I, I take taking a page out of Dr. Rattan Lal's book. You know, more from the cost side of things, looking at the regenerative land use lens. You know, he he has calculated that if the price were one hundred and forty four dollars per ton, not CO2 equivalent. And so if it's a, if it's a ton of CO2 equivalent, anyway, it's like talking in the soil carbon lens, yep. um, one metric ton of carbon, <laughs> um, which is what the teraton number is, um, I believe, not CO2 equivalents. Um, that's, that's tons of carbon. Um, in, uh, he, he states $144 is like the tipping point so that any farm anywhere on earth has, you know, like a hundred percent incentive to practice a fully regenerative agriculture. Like that's mm -hmm. where there is no arguing with the sort of economics of it. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. but, but man, anywhere, a uh, hundred dollars a ton would be transformative. I mean, I think right now the, you know, carbon global carbon markets, you can you can buy you can pay as much as you want for carbon. Obviously, um, there's sort of no ceiling to it. I've seen quite expensive carbon, but I think the average price for for a CO two equivalent is something like four dollars. Yeah, um, well, depending on the yeah depending on the geography, right? So I think it's yeah. Um, yeah I so this is a um, you know pretty important kind of element to so this this carbon price in um, 
um, in the sense that it's giving the right incentive uh, for, for the people to actually act and, and uh, take decisions. Now, uh, the reason why uh, when you do decide to impose a carbon price, I think it's also important to have it uh, bridged over a certain period. So there would be a transition regime. So, uh, and this is, uh, you know, twofold objective in order to avoid magnifying the impact of the stranded assets. So the stranded assets, you know, for which you would have, you know, of course, exposure at the banking sector. And there might be a case made to create a, at the central bank level, a bad bank, you know, for stranded assets. So in, 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 in this field. So the imposition of a carbon, global carbon price, you know, would have these two elements, you know, transition, you know, you can't do this overnight. So you would have to give it like, you know, over a, over a three to four year time period. And so gradual price might actually be uh, moving up gradually. And at the same time, uh, create provisions that you don't have in as part of the transition, you know, uh, institutions or essential institutions that go belly up. And so there could be uh, some of the financial institutions, but it could also be uh, some of the um, uh, uh, institutions that are, you know, critical, essential in your, you know, food supply and uh, your overall supply chain management kind of uh, uh, process. Well, I, yeah, I mean, maybe it's the pirate in me, but uh, don't we want some of those institutions to disappear? <laughs> um, yes, I mean, there are, I mean, there's, there is, there is, of course, you know, an element. I mean, uh, isn't there the, a case to be made that many of these institutions sort of went with the sort of like Reagan Thatcher-esque, you yes. know, there is no society, screw all the people and isn't, wouldn't it kind of be their just desserts if those institutions just kind of like disappeared into the night? <laughs> yeah, but uh, there's, there's a couple of things, you know, you, you can actually, uh, address that issue too, but you, you don't, you know, ultimately you also want to make sure that your society can still exist, right? So that there is not a chaos. And, you know, for example, as we've seen in 2008, it didn't take much, you know, to actually take away, uh, if your payment uh, system doesn't work, I think to what kind of chaos does it lead, right? So um, uh, what we have seen at some points at, at, at the, the, the beginning of the COVID-19 crisis, you know, you, you, you saw some of the hoarding taking place, right, in, in case your supply chain is being uh, challenged. Uh, you know, this is some of the kind of things that you want to avoid. I mean, yes, you, you, of course, you want to have comeuppance, you know, for some of the um, institutions that, were, that had total disregard for, you know, public health and for the well-being of the uh, individual citizens uh, or individual customers. At the same time, you know, you have to find a, like, like, like a, a balance in a sense that you could actually say, okay, these, you know, you lose these kind of activities, or you have to forego these type of activities. But you know, your payment function is essential, and you have to. We give you sufficient means to continue um, uh, maintain your your payment function. But I think nobody, to your point, nobody would actually shed a tear if Monsanto would, would disappear. I mean, like it's. Um, you know, if, if you look at, you know, uh, what the introduction of Roundup and glyphosate has actually done to our overall health uh, and to the incidence of cancer uh, tumors, I mean, that's, yeah, you're totally right. If, if that would be the case, then nobody would sh shed a tear about their disappearance. Yeah, I, yeah, I mean, and this is where, you know, there's a really interesting 
topic, right? Climate justice and how sort of social justice and um, these sort of issues play in to the right kind of transition strategy. And, you know, I, I think this is an active conversation and, you know, probably we need to take a, a page out of sort of the truth and reconciliation book here that mm -hmm. you, you can't, you can't really go crazy with, you know, everybody getting their just desserts and sort of like the justice approach. If you're really going to transform as a society, it, it seems, it seems like there's a good historical precedent that in order to, to really move on, we can't be, so strict in holding people accountable in organizations accountable so much w what we need to focus on is that the transition and transformation takes place and um yeah so i think that's there's a lot of wisdom in that um there's a lot i know it's a matter of wisdom and if you look in history where it's the nazi regime so i think if you look in the build-up of germany a lot ex-nazis you know became very prominent political figures, economic figures in German society. If you look at the post-apartheid regime, so it's just, you know, the, uh, um, the, the, the commissions for reconciliation actually, uh, and as well as in Northern Ireland, you know, with the former IRA members, I mean, this all led to a more um, milder, sorry, to a milder and a more uh, reconciliation kind of focused and oriented kind of society. And, you know, they, uh, and they subsequently, uh, each of the three cases, they flourished. Yeah, whereas, you know, in, in Weimar, in the Weimar Republic in Germany after World War One, which is, you know, totally different, but the, you know, the, the French and other um, allies sort of forcing the, uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> forcing yep. the German um, state into some pretty nasty conditions, it gave rise to the Third Reich. So there's a, uh, there's pretty solid historical evidence here that as we're thinking about this global transition, we need to, yeah, kind of take that, that lens that, that we're all going to have to live together <laughs> in the, in, in this new era. Um, so forgiveness is important. Yeah. Forgiveness is important, but it's also ultimately, I think it's to, to see that the people ultimately embrace also that these practices also benefit them and, 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 and their families and, and, you know, for generations to come. So, um, and these people, you know, are, are, you know, as I said, they're in need of healing. They're hurt for, for whatever reasons or they're blindsided for whatever reason. Um, but this is also what I said, I stress the words, you know, um, the, the, the healing part of, you know, whatever kind of uh, restructuring program is a very important uh, pillar in addressing our five-headed crisis. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I couldn't agree more. So I'm, um, I'm inclined to, to, um, I, I mean, I, I certainly have more questions. Uh, most of my questions sort of circle back to some ground we've already covered around, you know, I still feel like I'm, you know, trying to wrap my head around the, the, the stable coin element of this and, and how that interacts uh, versus having um, more of a sort of strict uh, Keynesian, Keynesian um, approach where, the, where those assets would actually, you know, sort of be a little bit more volatile. Um, 
Um, so I, I, you know, I'd be interested in hearing your, your thoughts about that specifically, uh, because that to me feels, you know, it's, it's, it's an interesting and perhaps, perhaps it's part of, I think what's uniquely yours about, you know, this proposal that I think that the, 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 the addition of that ingredient is, um, you know, maybe there's other people calling for that, but it 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 certainly differentiates uh, what you're proposing here from Dr. Chin's proposal, for instance. Um, mm-hmm. And so I'd I'd just love to hear more about the um, like what's attractive about having this be a stable asset instead of something that could sort of be speculated on. Um, Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. yeah, what's speak more about that and exactly the mechanisms? Are you talking about an algorithmic stable coin, something like you know Maker, uh, Maker makes possible, and others, Cello, um, and other other stable coins, or a hundred percent collateral, or is it just that there's a bottom? I mean, I mean the Dr. Chin's uh, theory, I believe, there's basically just a fixed buy that the central banks are committing to always buy the asset at a certain price, and then it could go up from there essentially forever. Um, so, you know, just, yeah, just discerning and, and helping me wrap my head around that key ingredient of, of the stablecoin would be really fantastic. Okay. So there is actually for the stablecoin, um, and actually they actually, uh, for the benefit of the audience, uh, is the stablecoin is not 100% back. So in my case, it's 20% back. So there's a one to five kind of relationship. And so once you have that notion of stablecoin, the reason why I thought of a stablecoin was, um, first of all, is, you know, we're looking at the current state of the financial markets. And so what we see is there's a lot of debasing of a currency going on. So there's a lot of fiat currency in, in issuance. There's like 23 billion, sorry, 23 trillion, I do apologize, 23 trillion of assets residing on global central bank balance sheets. So that's not a recipe for a healthy you know, uh, for currencies. And so that's in the face of that, you know, I was coming up. So how could you mimic a gold standard equivalent um, in the absence also of SDRs having a successful track record? So that's, you know, where the notion of like, you know, this benchmark currency status uh, has been derived so that other currencies within your monetary ecosystem could be referenced on towards a pricing perspective. So that's a one. The second element is now that you do have that collateral base. And so the collateral would sorry, be spread. Um, sorry, sorry, before you go on, um, hmm? can you, uh, what, what does the acronym SDR? Uh, oh, sorry. Yeah. So the SDR are the special drawing rights. And these were actually uh, designed in 1969 by the IMF as a reserve asset or as a unit of account, or maybe also as a synthetic gold standard. And so once the gold standard was abandoned in 1971, the SDRs were advanced by the IMF as, you know, that, that gold standard. And what a special drawing right is nothing else than a, um, in, in the current case, it's a unit of account and also serves as a, a reserve asset expressed in the five major global currencies, including the renminbi as of 2016. So that's what a special drawing right, and they use the special drawing rights, you know, especially for countries facing with balance of payment issues or with um, uh, distortion or turbulence on the foreign exchange market in need of uh, hard currency. 
Interesting. So, so now I'm, I, and maybe some of my listeners are familiar with, uh, you know, Cello and Maker and other kind of crypto stable coin. Mm -hmm. um, maybe even people are familiar with Libra. Um, I'm curious about the, the mechanics of this proposal. Is there a similar, like, is there, are investors collateralizing the, you know, the, at the end of the day, who ends up um, putting the money down to, to do that 20% collateralization? Where is that asset coming from? And, and is there sort of an upside to that, to, to the risk associated with, with that 20% collateralization? Um, and who has the rights to take that risk and reap those rewards? I, I presume there would be sort of rewards for sort of pu putting into that pool. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that and how that relates specifically to sort of the idea of the IMF as a core institution here? Mm -hmm. So the, the IMF would actually both be the issuer of the stable, sorry, uh, the issuer of the climate coin and at the same time putting up the collateral. Right. So if you look at the balance sheet uh, of the IMF, it's in excess of, and it's, it's uh, actually expressed in, you know, in terms of SDRs, special drawing, right? So, and currently an SDR is about, uh, one SDR equates to $1.4. Uh, so that's that's the, the, the exchange rate. So there is on that balance sheet of the IMF about half a trillion of SDRs. And so I have identified, so you would actually need a ratification by the IMF member countries uh, to assign some of that money to collateralize that IMF climate coin. So it would be the IMF um, member countries deciding to allocate it and then to manage that collateral, um, you know, in, in the form that I described. Uh, so I think it would be mostly geared towards sustainable assets. So the collateral would be managed uh, in, in, in what I propose, 55% would be land and forests, so uh, equivalents to carbon sinks. Then um, a 25% would be in renewable energy and a 15% uh, would go into ESG, the top ESG companies in the world and the remainder would go into um, a uh, uh, bio uh, pharmaceutical uh, or biohealth um, kind of ventures in order to address pandemic risks. So that's about, you know, the, the, the exposure of the collateral. And um, so the management, so it would be gauged on a monthly basis. And if there would be an excess, uh, then I think, you know, some of the liquid parts would be sold and go into a stabilization fund, or if there would be a, um, uh, if there would be losses, then I think, you know, there would be uh, a draw taken from that stabilization fund in order to keep up or to maintain that collateral ratio. So, uh, yeah, so that stabilization fund is sort of the buyback mechanism. And um, what's the ratio between the size of the stabilization fund and the size of the collateral pool and the size of the sort of total assets in circulation? So that I have not defined. I have said there would be seed, uh, seed assets at the, um, but that's that's something to be defined. So again, I I, um, uh, I do um, that's an element that needs further elaboration. Interesting. Okay, great. That's super helpful. I had sort of, excuse me, I had missed that the 
th that allocation, so, you know, the 50, 50 or 55% in, um, you know, perennial forestry or, or um, mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera, was um, the, the collateralization proposal I, I had, because uh, I, I mean, obviously I had just a mi minute to skim that last one because I had missed that, that third um, section of the article. So I was thinking that that was more the suggestion of where the initial rewards would go in sort of a, a basket. Um, can you speak to, it, does your proposal include kind of a prescription for the, you know, reward allocation? You know, like how much of this goes to emission reduction? How much of this goes to, you know, drawdown into, you know, natural climate solutions, et cetera? Or are you sort of um, agnostic about that? Well, um, maybe if, if I, I'll, I I'd like to mention one thing about the carbon sink. So I also make a link with uh, those identified by the global or uh, our um, uh, planetary boundaries as identified by the Stockholm Re um, Resilience Center, right? Mm -hmm. so, um, so the IMF would be focusing in its collateral deployment on these areas under most under threat as identified by the Stockholm Resilience Center's dashboard, right, of, of planetary boundaries. That would be, so, I, you know, I just want to make, um, you know, share that also to the benefit of uh, the audience. So coming back to your question, so um, there is no um, kind of uh, specifics have been outlined. It's just that you know you have every country as part of its articulation or commitment to the voluntary uh, nationally determined contributions as part of the 2015 Paris Agreement. So if you could actually identify, and again, that would be done on a, uh, the carbon registry of the IMF, that you have abated, negated, avoided a one ton of uh, CO2 uh, or its equivalent, then you would be awarded that coin. So it would be one coin uh, valued uh, at uh, the collateral base plus, you know, assigned a value, the notional value of 100, um, you know, in my case, as the introduction price for carbon. Yeah, uh, cool. That's, that's helpful context as well. Well, this is all... Um... I'm I'm aware we've been um, we've been at it for a little bit, and um, I want to respect your time. Um, so, um, yeah, I'm yeah, I'm just really grateful for you taking time to walk through this proposal. Um, as I said, I'll I'll get the link to the article the three articles so that listeners who'd like to can have a, have a glance at those or, or a deeper read. My sense is that we've probably gone, gone a, a little bit further in depth even than, than was managed in the article because they're, mm -hmm. they're, they're beautifully brief, but I think they do a great job of, of sort of the high level ideas. I'm curious um, if you'd like to share any other just information about how people can uh, follow your work or um, yeah, if you want to share anything with listeners about just other steps that they might, you know, resources or, or books or resources that, that, that you found particularly compelling and, you know, of course, how to yeah, follow you or um, just kind of keep track of as this idea progresses. Yeah. So um, there's a couple of things, of course, you could, you know, as the LinkedIn page, you could find me on LinkedIn um, there is, a, uh, of course, you can also uh, follow me on, on the Forbes page, or you can also find me on through uh, Middlebury uh, College 
think if you just do uh, uh, enter my name in Middlebury College, you find my details to contact me. That's one thing about the personal detail. On the other side, yeah, books, there are so many. Uh, there's so many books there, you know, to, to, to mention, uh, you know, in, in um, I would have to say, you know, being here at Middlebury College, you know, I've also been shaped by the thinking, uh, be it more, you know, from the, the, the raising the awareness of a Bill McKibben. But apart from that, you know, the thinking beyond, um, there is uh, Hickel, Jason Hickel, um, you know, his latest book about, um, you know, how can we actually pursue an economic model without growth? I mean, that's a very interesting kind of paradigm and, and question and something that's very close to my heart. Uh, because I think, you know, we are, we can no longer afford to uh, sustain our consumption pattern as we did in the past or, you know, pursue extraction as we've done uh, since the Second World War. Um, there is um, Elkington, um, there is uh, the Green Swan, um, there's, of course, Wendell, um, there is uh, some of the work of, uh, you know, more, you know, about the carbon, uh, Nortas and Romer, I mentioned before. Uh, there's work on the commons that I'm inspired by. Um, yeah, there's actually a whole list. I should actually provide a full list of all the books that inspire me. So, but people who want, uh, who are interested in, in to, to, uh, to have a list, I'm more than happy to, uh, to provide one. Yeah, fantastic. Um, well, that's, that's great. And we'll do our best to have... Um, have some of those resources in the show notes. I, I do apologize to listeners out there. I'm awful at show notes. Um, <laughs> part of that is just being super busy with region network and trying to, you know, focus on in-depth conversations, not getting lost in the, you know, everything that this podcast could be. So my apologies to, to both you as a guest, Frank, and to the listeners out there for ways that we may fall short in terms of providing resources and, and production value and things like that. But hopefully this sort of in-depth conversation and just really getting into the weeds is, is a value for everybody. It certainly is for me. So I'm really grateful for your time, Frank, and uh, I'm really excited about the upcoming uh, opportunity to to teach a little bit to your class at Middlebury and um, yes. yeah, just all of the collaborations that we have in the future. Um, yeah. Grateful for your work and your time. No, thank you for uh, having me as a guest, uh, Greg, and also for your, um, you know, um, your questions, which are very insightful. And so they uh, are always helpful to uh, force me to um, explain uh, these notions, which, you know, sometimes I take for granted, but, you know, sometimes they need, uh, further decomposition and explanation. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. Well, thanks for your patience with my with my questions there. And um, good. Well, we'll be in touch. And uh, yeah, until next time. Have a beautiful, uh, beautiful evening. And um, yeah, don't. <laughs> I guess it's a crazy time out there in the world. So um, you know, just my my best wishes, and uh, hopefully, it's a good good term for you there at Middlebury, and uh, we'll sort of collectively turn this boat around over the coming year or two. <laughs> you bet, you bet, Greg. So right. um, thank you again. Cheers. All the best. Bye bye.